VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardawar. Sherlin is off this week, but I'm joined with senior writer Sam Rutherford. Hey, Sam. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. And Sam, I feel I'm so jealous of all the fun things you've had time with over the past week. Um, you have uh, had some hands-on time with the Asus ROG Ally. That's their new Steam Deck competitor that seems super cool. And you've had time with uh, The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. So... I, I see you. You're just like you're you're you're. I don't know. What's what's the word? You're buzzing. You're buzzing with all the cool stuff. Yeah, you I, I mean, I kind of no. hinted at this last week. Like, <laughs> you know, this is like there's some stuff I want to talk about, but I couldn't say anything yet. And now the, the embargo's up. Um, you know, we have uh, coverage on the site, and there's a video on YouTube if you want to check out the ROG Ally. Let's do the intro, and then I will dive back. Oh, to sure. You, okay? As always, folks, if you're enjoying this show, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. Drop us an email at podcastandgadget.com. And you know what? That inbox is a little empty. I would love to see some questions and comments and feedback from people. So if you want us to answer your question live on air, um, there's not much of a line. So drop us anything. We'll do some research for you. We'll talk about it on the show. Um, And as always, you can join us Thursday mornings, uh, typically around 10.30 a.m. Eastern on our YouTube channel for our live stream, where we record the show, we do some Q&A with the audience, and sometimes we even show off gadgets. Now, one gadget I wish we could show off, Sam, is the ROG Ally. You had some time with it, um, and you seem pretty positive from your preview so far. Uh, You called it um, the most powerful handheld gaming PC yet. Uh, First of all, what is this thing, and uh, how does it compare to the Steam Deck? This is basically Asus' take on a Steam Deck, but a much more premium version. Um, So it's still, you know, handheld gaming PC, and you have built-in controls and, you know, paddles and back. But the big difference is, uh, number one, that it runs Windows. And Asus said this was a very um, deliberate decision because they want the Ally to be able to play games from all of the big stores. You know, Steam, Epic Game Store, you know, EA Play, what have you. Uh, and then, uh, the, kind of the thing that kind of surprised me a little bit is that it features uh, AMD's new Z1 chip, which uh, is created by uh, AMD specifically for PC gaming handhelds. They didn't, um, they announced it the day these hands ups went on. So this is a whole new chip from AMD, the Ryzen Z1, and there's an even faster one, right? The Z1 Extreme or something. Right. Yeah. And uh, Asus, uh, there's, you know, hasn't revealed full details about it. So there, it looks like there may be a couple different SKUs that one has like this uh, base Z1 and there might be one with the Z1 Extreme. But, you know, on a performance level, uh, Asus was claiming it'll be, more powerful uh, at 15 watt TDP, and it'll be twice as powerful at 30 to 35 watt TDP. And so that's a pretty big jump up over the Steam Deck. Wow. And then uh, on top of that, it has a much nicer screen. It might be even an overkill screen, depending on like how that performance actually pans out. Seven inch, 120 hertz mm-hmm. on, a, on a mobile thing. And it's 1080p, it's not 720, like the, I believe the Steam Deck is, right? So, wow. Okay. 
Asus said they've been working on this thing for five years, and it, it kind of shows because they really paid attention to a lot of the details, um, because they even focused on some of the fans. Uh, and, and anyone who owns a Steam Deck, especially one with the, uh, I think it's the Delta fan, there's, it just has a whine to it that like you can't fully get away uh, get away from. And the Al- RG Ally is surprisingly quiet. Um, I, I was kind of shocked by it. Um, that said, you know, there I have a couple concerns because we're talking about a much more powerful chip, a much higher res, brighter screen, and it has the same size battery as the Steam Deck, and that is a little bit concerning just from, like, a portability... Yeah, an hour of play, maybe, with this thing? Yeah. You know, it still gets hot, and, you know, it gets a little bit sweaty, but it has all the main things. The only thing it doesn't really have is compared to, like, some other rivals, like the INEO 2, is that it doesn't have those Hall Effect sensors for the joystick, so it's not magnetic. It's more of your standard analog joystick, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. Asus, it's fine, but those those could drift eventually, right? Right. Um, Asus has hinted, and they haven't really said anything, uh, you know, concrete yet. But there, it may be possible to replace those with third party options down the line. So we're waiting to see, you know, kind of more about this. Um, and especially, obviously, the big thing they haven't said yet is price. Um, there's going to be a full uh, official launch on May 11th, and that's when we're going to uh, hear about the pricing and stuff like that. Gotcha. But as yeah. Yeah, looking at looking at the spec, Sam. Like, I what would you guess? I would guess starting seven to eight hundred dollars. Yeah, I'm 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 really thinking about the eight hundred dollar range. There have been some rumors that it might be six hundred. I find that kind of uh, might be a stretch. But even at eight hundred dollars, if it's twice as powerful as a Steam Deck and it's twice the price, I don't. You know, that seems about right. That's um, not bad. That, that is the price of a budget gaming laptop. So something like Dell's G series, which we've talked about and we've recommended in our guides, those typically start at 800, 900 bucks and you get, you get faster hardware, but it's a laptop, right? You have to walk around with it. You can't just have it in your hand and play games as easily as this. Mm-hmm. And I obviously be, with those two different Z1 SKUs, there is a little bit of wiggle room. So you could have like maybe a base model at 700 and then like a more premium one at 900, 800, maybe a thousand. And I could definitely see that. Um, I could see them going higher. Like, I think what we have learned with the the appetite of gamers recently is the consoles have gotten more expensive. Um, PC GPUs have gotten crazy expensive, and people are still fighting tooth and nail to get a 4080 and a 4090. So I could totally see that extreme chip being like, you want the creme de la creme? Uh, pay $1,200, you know, or potentially even more. That INEO, the two you tested, Sam, isn't that already, like, close to 1000 bucks and over? Yep. Uh, and that, that starts at, like, I think it's like $800, $900 for the right, base right. model. But for the one you want, you're looking at $1,000. And actually, I think, uh, you know, it's good that you mentioned it because I really think that the RG Ally is really sort of a better version of the Ionia, uh, Ionia 2 just because it has, you know, an updated processor. But it has the same basic design, but it's from a much bigger company. So you get that, you know, advantages of like economy of scale. And right, I'm really right. hoping that like Asus has, you know, better support than the INEO 2, which is kind of like you buy and it's like, okay, now you can tinker with it, but it, you're, you're totally on your own. My, my worry with a lot of these things is like, yeah, do I buy something from a random company, uh, you know, from China or somewhere where I don't, I don't know about their quality. I don't know about their customer service. I'm spending, once you spend more than $500 on something, I'm like, I really would like legit support. Right, and, and like on the Neo yeah. too, like it has like a like a product manual like downloaded onto the device, but when I opened it up, it was all in Chinese. So it's like, oh, okay, you know, I you, you did something, but like if I have to translate it on my own, that's not really all that helpful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I see people joking, like uh, George Morgan in the chat room saying, if it's running Windows, that's probably enough to to kill the battery. 
Hey, sure. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I, I think the real joy here is the thing I'm kind of annoyed with, with the Steam Deck is that you can't really get out of Steam easily, right? You can launch a web browser, you can get to some game streaming services, but it is a it's a little bit of work to add like Xbox uh, Game Pass streaming to the Steam Deck because you have to go into the browser and add a shortcut and a whole bunch of things. You don't have access to the other app stores. Um, I do feel like we kind of want these things to run Windows. I wonder if Microsoft is doing anything to just like give us a, a slightly slimmer version of Windows that is just purely meant for these games. I feel like, I don't know. That would be yeah, something there, nice there was see. a demo recently where Microsoft showed off like a, a version of Windows that's tweaked so that, you know, it would be better for handheld gaming PCs with like kind of an updated, more friendly UI. And so hopefully, you know, that comes about. Um, I know a lot of people thought it was like, oh, this is going to be like Windows 12. Like, no, that's not the same thing. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Um, another thing, uh, we previewed uh, Dell had like a... A weird concept device, the Alienware UFO. Yeah, Project UFO, I think. Project yep. UFO a couple of years ago. Um, we haven't seen the the handheld again recently. I think they just can't kind of given up on that. But this kind of looks a little like that, but maybe yeah, more. Yeah. It, it's kind e of interesting. Mm -hmm. just, just because it's like Dell showed that thing off in, I think, 2020. And it's like, like suddenly between like. Obviously, the Steam Deck last year, and then like the stuff like the Ionio Two, the the Win, uh, the GPD Win Four, and then now the ROG Ally. You know, it's kind of like the year of the handheld gaming PC, and it's like Dell was like out in front showing people sure. like what they wanted to do, and like they never they never like made anything that we could buy. So it's like kind of kind of weird from to like see that missing. That is the point of concept devices, right? To be early to a thing, but also that should lead to something. Um, also at CES, we saw Dell's like the the UFO concept controller too, which is, I, I hated that thing. You could go read my coverage about that, but it was just like this weirdly like misshapen and just like seem, seemingly ill-informed controller for and, from and Dell. And it goes off in a weird yeah. tangent that I'm not sure people really want, especially like given all the recent development for handhelds. For sure. So what... Honestly, Sam, like I feel like the pitch of the Steam Deck wasn't really clear to me on until I picked one up. Like they were easy to buy. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll check this out. And I like it because I can do PC gaming stuff. I get my whole Steam library anywhere, but anywhere in my home. I don't really take it anywhere beyond that. Do you think that is a good pitch for a lot of consumers? Like just being able to get your whole PC gaming library in bed or on the couch or something? Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like for me, once I had a kid, like I was not able to sit at a desk yes. as much anymore. Yes. And so uh -huh. being able to like sit on the couch with my wife and like have the kid roaming around, it's actually like, it sounds like a small thing, but it makes a big impact on the way I play games. And so having, being able to have a handheld device that I can like take from room to room with me actually is really, really nice. There's, um, there's a good piece uh, from Sean Buckley at Engadget who wrote about uh, the Steam Deck bringing um, PC gaming back into his life after he had a kid. And it's the same thing. It is PC gaming. The, the beauty of it is you have the full power of your PC. You have, you could store a ton of games, but you have to sit at, you typically have to sit at a desk and in front of a monitor, the steam deck just kind of takes that anywhere. And I feel like that is the big draw for a lot of these things too. Yeah. Right? And as I'm getting older and like more nostalgic and playing more retro games, it's like, I don't care as much about the performance. <laughs> and it's like, it's just nice having something that like can theoretically play everything. Um, and but you know I can still bring it around. It's kind of funny. Um, I've definitely spent more time playing Vampire Survivors than anything else on my Steam Deck, and I spent way too much money on that thing to play a three dollar, you know, tiny game using not even sixteen bit graphics. To be honest, like just really old school stuff. So 
Sam, just uh, what what are your takeaway thoughts from this? Are you excited to see and review this thing? Um, how do you feel about like all the different components of the hardware? Because I think the D pad looks like four buttons, but like on a circular pad. Like how do how does all that feel to you? Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting because this thing is actually significantly smaller and thinner than the Steam Deck, and that you know has its uh, pros and cons because you don't get those big grips, so it's not quite as comfortable. But Asus has like designed it so that if you're like resting it with your hands on a table. It's um, it actually kind of works in that situation, but I mean in general, like I'm, I can't wait to check it out. There's some things that I'm not too sure about. Like Asus includes support for the XG mobile port, so you can connect one of its big docks, yeah. and it's like, and you you say a port. I've seen this thing, and I'm looking at your screenshot, looking at your photos now. It is like a USB C port plus like a big, 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 big port. Yeah, right it, next it's to a it. it's oh, a socket. It's, it's like a fire hose of a port. Yeah. Um, and so. Theoretically, you can connect one of their external GPU docks to the uh, ROG Ally, and you can get way better performance. But you know, then we're talking. You might as well have a laptop at that point. Um, you might as well have a laptop. And uh, I feel like a lot of people that I've talked to often stream games in their homes remotely from their gaming PCs to to their handheld, so you get the better performance of your gaming PC. But you know, you could take it anywhere. So I feel like I don't know if anybody's going to do this. I, that big cable, man, that big cable that they have for the uh, their external GPUs, just it looks like something that will break instantly. Like that thing falls once and those giant um, ports will just snap off. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of like curious to see if anyone's going to buy this and like buy this instead of like a laptop. And then like they just have like their home desktop set up. And then instead of having a box, like, you know, everything is powered by the ROG ally. I'm curious to see if like how many people are going to do that. Cause it, theoretically it's possible. You could. You, you could dock it. You could plug in monitors and something. I'm wondering, like, it seems more like maybe people would have this as their gaming system type of thing. And then have a MacBook air or something on the side, like have something lighter and more nimble that they would actually use for productivity and work. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, I, it's good that you mentioned the D pad. I'm personally not a fan of the D pad. I like a traditional cross style D pad or even like the, Sony's like arrow-shaped D-pads, uh, much better. But that said, the screen is such an improvement over the Steam Deck. I I can't like, th- th- this is what I've wanted on a handheld like gaming PC for such a long time. I don't even really care about necessarily the 120 hertz because like I'm not expecting the that thing to be able to you know support 120 FPS on you know most games, especially more modern stuff. Maybe scale down Overwatch or something could could hit. Yeah, or, you know, yeah. maybe there's a chance that, like, Asus supports, like, black frame insertion, which will make things look a lot clearer, and then you still get the advantage of that 120 hertz, but you don't have to worry about pushing, a, you know, a full 120 FPS all the time. But I, I think, you know, I th- really think this thing has a lot of potential, and, you know, the Steam Deck is great because it's it's very affordable, and it kind of runs everything, and it's like, you know, for those who are t- tied into the Steam OS or Steam ecosystem, it's a great device for that. You know, there's I think there's a lot of room in the ecosystem or in the marketplace for a more premium version of that, especially something that runs Windows. And so I'm I'm really excited to check this thing out. Cool. And uh, the official launch is what May 11th, and we'll probably see a review sometime around then, right? Yep, yep. Uh, hopefully, you know, sometime in May. But as soon as we get it in, we'll have it out for you. Cannot wait to see more of this. And also, speaking of gaming stuff, Sam, you spent time with the Legend of Zelda: Tears of the Kingdom. At a preview event, um, you guys can go read our coverage of that. Uh, I don't know if you have video, but you have a lot of pictures and things from that. Can you yeah. set the stage, by the way? Because I don't. I feel like people aren't always clear about like what a Nintendo event is like. And 
their preview events to me always feel very like orchestrated and very controlled in a very Apple-like way. What was it like going there? And you know, before you even got to the game, like just describe what you saw. Yeah, um, you're you're kind of spot on because like they a lot of times Nintendo like you know they they want people to experience the game in the way they want yeah it to happen. It's very Disney too. It's very like. You're you're entering the Nintendo zone, and you have these great helpers to yeah guide you. Yeah, yeah, and, and there there yeah. is some hand holding, and I actually appreciate it. So, um, you know, I went to an event space uh, in New York City where they had you know a whole bunch of systems and TV set up for demos, and you know I had about seventy five minutes to ninety minutes or so to play with the game, but before I even got to touch it, we, you know they had like a fit ten to fifteen minute explainer about the new abilities, and. That it was like a little bit frustrating, but then like once I was like learning about it, I really understood why they needed to do that because, especially uh, Ultra Hand, it's it's a really in depth mechanic. This game seems like a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Ultra Hand is basically you know Link's version of like a power glove, and it allows him to pick up items, uh, kind of build them like uh, Lego style, like smash them together, and you can create all sorts of vehicles and stuff like that. But it's also pretty in-depth because you can pick items up. You have to rotate them just right. You have to attach them just right. And then, like, if you attach it wrong, you have to, like, pick it up. And you can shake the controller to, like, unattach something. So there is, like, a, a lot of, like, mechanics that, like, I'm I'm sure that you'll pick up more naturally as, like, you play the game. But, like, for someone going in with a demo, I was like, I have a certain amount of time to see this stuff. It would actually really help to have that demo. Um, and then, so after they ran through, like, the, the general explainer about stuff like that, uh, they sent me in like a small, like kind of play world area where, uh, I was like running through uh, a goblin camp and then I had to go and traverse some of the sky islands. And so I'm really getting a chance to like, uh, test out a lot of the new abilities. And so the four main ones are ascend, uh, recall, fuse, and ultra hand. Um, and ascend is pretty basic. It just lets you swim through, uh, solid objects, but you can only swim upwards and it has to be through a ceiling. So it doesn't work if you're just running around outside, but if you're in a cave, it works, or if you're in a building, it works. I'm very um, confused by that particular. in particular. It almost seems like uh, people, we see on YouTube, like people love to like stress the mechanics and the physics of uh, of the original game, of Breath of the Wild, and it almost seems like, man, people are clipping through things. People are clipping through, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's almost like, like a dev tool that yeah. they made real. Um, yeah. But I, I think there's because... You know, uh, Tears of the Kingdom has the same basic map as Breath of the Wild, except there are, you know, they've altered a lot of the places just due to time and location for the story. But there's also a ton of new Sky Islands. And so Ascend is really like kind of a, a simple tool to help you gain elevation, which you really need to be able to get to those different Sky Islands. Mm -hmm. Rather than like using your stamina meter and slowly like climbing up a mountain or something. Yeah, yeah. Does Ascend use stamina? Like how is there a limit to like how far and how long you can go? I it's it, it's it was hard to tell from the gameplay demo that you know if stamina was actually tied to it i'm not sure actually okay gotcha gotcha there's also the one recall right which is another just sort of like this is a very nintendo thing this is a very nintendo mechanic like the mechanic of diving into warp pipes or something which blew my mind when i was five years old this is like so something can be rewound by back in time a specific object can if you see something fall from the sky you could hop on it and rewind it back in time up. How did you use that mechanic? Because it's really, it's just wild. Yeah, so there's actually two different, like, main main uses for that thing. One is for, like, you know, uh, I, I talked about it in the hands-on, where, like, you know, I was in the goblin camp, and they rolled the giant spiky ball at me. I'm like, okay, well, this is obviously bad. Like, I don't want to be Indian, uh, like, you know, Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's, 
in that situation, you can use recall and you can send the spiky ball back where it came from, which is just like, okay, I'm going to go bowling for goblins now. And so you just like, you see them just like it, the, the ball hits and they just go f- flying everywhere. And it's awesome. But also um, you can use it as another movement ability because a lot of times on the skylands, they'll have boulders and stuff falling down from the skylands. Right, right. So once the boulder lands, you can uh, jump on top of it, hit recall, and you just go teleporting straight up into the sky. Um, and it's actually like it's really interesting how it has that kind of duality to it because, you know, you, you kind of think it's like, oh man, and it just gets you thinking about like all the different ways you can use it. It's just I I cannot wait to see how people uh, test and stress the limits of this game because it seems like that's what Nintendo has really been paying attention to is like how people play with everything they gave people in Breath of the Wild. Yeah, um, you, you saw yeah. all those like old viral clips of like. You know, people like using magnesis to like send things like a million miles into the air, or using stasis to like freeze things. So people are making like air rafts and stuff uh, using the magnet stuff, and now you could just do that because you could just build something. Yeah, yeah. That's the, like I, I have yeah. to imagine Nintendo saw what people were doing in Breath of the Wild and be like, let's like let's support that, like foster that, and give them even more tools to like you know really reinforce that sandbox nature of the game. Um, which kind of brings us to the next two abilities, which I think are the most fun, and everyone's going to be talking about these which is a uh, fuse or fusion and ultra hand. So fusion lets you uh, combine any two, pretty much any two items. So like you can even do like food items, but like all sorts of stuff like fronds, leaves, <laughs> uh, crystals, bombs, like uh, all the sorts of stuff that like enemies drop when they die um, with any one of your weapons. And so like, uh, like right after I killed the, the goblins with the spiky ball, they dropped some of their horns and I refused that to a stick and made a spear. And I was like, this is awesome because not only do I have a ton of reach, but like depending on like the strength of the goblin you killed, the spear will be stronger. And also like before in Breath of the Wild, like you would collect a lot of the things like goblin things and other objects, but you sell it maybe, maybe you yeah, use you, it you, for a recipe. It didn't really have it, like, a, yeah. like, yeah, a lot of reason to use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I wonder what the like matrix of building things looks like because it sounds like when they started talking about it it sounded like you could basically put any two items together and they have come up with a way to use them right and and so it's important to like mention that it's only one item with one other item you can't like make an item and then add another item to that and then add another item uh so there there is a limit but like even like with what they have now it's it just feels crazy like you can uh fuse like one of the eyeballs that the bats drop and then you can make a homing arrow if you attach that to your bow I, that, that's um, pure Nintendo logic. You have an eye, you have an arrow, stick it and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And then like I put a bomb on my shield and then uh, I then I was using my shield to deflect things. And then like some enemy came up and hit me and then exploded. I didn't take any damage, but they got the full fr- uh, force of the bomb <laughs> in their face. And it's like, oh, this is awesome. It's putting like dynamite to the front of your shield, basically. That's yeah. And, then, and there's yeah. like all sorts of wacky, silly combinations. Um like I made like a giant like fan on the end of a stick and I was just like beating people with like the wind, not even with the fan itself. And it's like, okay, this is, this is unbelievably silly, but like, I'm totally here for it. How did the game look? Because I feel like another controversy right now is that yeah, the switch is getting old. The switch is pretty old. Um, Cause both Sony and Microsoft are on their next generation of hardware. The switch is running old, like very old NVIDIA Tegra hardware. Does it, did it feel good to you? You know? I mean, it, it feels responsive, but it looks more or less the same as the previous. There's, you know, been a couple like um, aesthetic tweaks for the the new game, but it's it's pretty much the same, you know, Breath of the Wild graphics that you know and love. And you know, in some respects, it's a little disappointing, but like I, I get it. Not only because the limitations of the Switch, but 
I think the Breath of the Wild style has aged pretty well, and so it still looks good today because they took a more, you know, artistic approach to it instead of like, let's do a hyper-realistic, like, Call of Duty style graphics. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, any any major takeaway, Sam? Like, I think we're all excited for this. I cannot wait to get my hands on this game. Um, I, yeah, you're not reviewing it, right? I'm sorry. Uh, no, because uh, it comes out the same day as like pretty much Google I.O. So someone else on staff is going to be reviewing it. Uh, so, <laughs> so pay attention to that. We will have all your coverage for you. Um, but just like I, I really, really like how they're diving into that sandbox nature of the game. And like Ultra Hand, um, you know, I spent 10 minutes building this like war wagon with flamethrowers on front and like, you know, all that stuff. But and then I drove it through some grass, and I forgot that the war wagon was made of wood, and the grass caught on fire, and then my entire war wagon caught on fire. So like I was like ten minutes out, and like Makes it's sense. funny because mm-hmm. like Nintendo's handlers were like you know they have people from the treehouse there watching you and like kind of answering some of your questions, and they were just laughing at me like when I was doing this, and I was like, <laughs> so I felt kind of embarrassed, but also it's like I had so much fun doing it. I was like I would totally do, like you know make something and have it fall apart again, and I think that was like my real takeaway is that like. The process is just so fun to do that even if you mess up, it doesn't matter because you're having a great time. Mm-hmm. I really wonder like the scale and size of things that people are going to be building um, and how people just like basically hack through the rules of the game. Because we've already seen with Breath of the Wild, like people will just come in, like jump off from the introduction area and go straight to fighting Ganon or something. And there are <laughs> oh, ways yeah. to do it. So yeah, yeah, like yeah, and and like I I got a chance to, like make a plane like kind of glide that around the, the skies. But like I'm thinking about like, people are gonna make helicopters and like straight up like aircraft carriers and like yeah uh, airships. It's gonna be wild. It's wild. Um, another feature I saw people talk about. I forget if you wrote about this, but there is a thing you could just like drop right, like a tablet you can drop to a space and go back to it. So that also really opens up the thing of like, okay, I'm going to drop this tablet here on an island. I'm going to try to make it to another one, and if I fail. I can still recall myself back to that, you know. The yeah, thing that that was cool. that was super important just because like you're always at risk of falling off one of those sky islands, and you like even though it is fun to like you know remake your vehicles and stuff, you don't want to. Sometimes you don't want to like waste twenty minutes getting back to the thing. So if you fall off, you can just teleport right back, and that's super convenient. It's a really nice quality of life feature that they're adding for this. That's game. super cool. Um, I don't has Nintendo done anything for people who are afraid of heights? Because one thing we talked about or we noticed with the. Uh, the horizon uh, DLC is that there is a thing for people who are afraid of being underwater. And like that is potential fear for them. This, this game seems like it will tap into a lot of our concerns about um, going really, really high up and falling all the way down because all that is just game world now. Right. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is that you have your glider like available to you all the time. So if you ever fall off, you can just press a button and suddenly you're like gliding around. And so uh, I didn't really have that fear. Um, It was more of just like, I'm flying this like, wackadoodle creation and i'm like completely out of control i'm trying to like jump to the skyline and i'm like don't know if i'm gonna make it that was that was my fear it's like constantly like a lot of times i was like feeling out of control and in like a fun way that's super cool i can i can imagine this mechanic eventually in some sort of vr game like to me that would be that would be the really cool thing of just like jumping from island to island in true platforming in vr and then you definitely need some sort of like height awareness for people but yeah anything else you want to add about zelda sam um the one thing uh, I should mention is that they didn't talk about the story at all um, because that was, wasn't part of the demo. But even just based on like some of the previous gameplay stuff and teasers that they've talked about, it's nice having Ganon be more of an active antagonist. And so I'm looking forward to that in terms of like how that will eventually like tie into uh, to the story. For sure. I'm more interested in like how, first of all, it is direct sequel to Breath of the Wild. So we're, we're mm-hmm. going to see how that works. But I, I kind of want to see how this all ties into the broader Zelda mythology because like, 
getting the timeline together and seeing it all laid out is kind of fun. Um, Wind Waker is like a potentially post-apocalyptic feature where the world has flooded and everything has happened long before. Um, man, all the Zelda talk. I just, I know there is there are Wind Waker. There are places to way uh, ways to play Wind Waker on your PC in very very high resolutions. I kind of want to do that right now. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the other thing that I like thought about was like even for Nintendo, like obviously Nintendo has made a ton of great games throughout the years, but like trying to make a follow up to the Breath of the Wild seems really hard. And like I'm almost wondering if it's going to be like a Majora's Mask situation. Where, you know, that was a pretty much a direct follow-up to Ocarina of Time. And it was really divisive for a couple different reasons. And so I'm, I'm curious to see what the kind of reception is to, to Tears of the Kingdom. You know, are people going to love it in the same way that they love Breath of the Wild? Or is it going to be a little bit more divisive like Majora's Mask was? Gotcha. All right. Thank you, Sam. Uh, where can people find your work online these days? Uh, you can always hit me up on social media, at Sam Rutherford on Twitter. And as always, on Gadget.com. Let's move on to some other news and joining me because uh, I, I asked around in Gadget and everybody's crazy busy. Uh, it's our podcast producer, Ben Elman. Hey, Ben. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I love to be your first string pick. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. I always have Ben. Like I can always rely on Ben in the background when everybody's busy. It's a, it's a busy time, too. So we've got a couple of stories. And last week um, we talked about basically minutes before we went live. Um, SpaceX's Starship rocket blasted off. It certainly got off the ground and got into the air, and then it uh, had an, what was it, unscheduled disassembly or something? Spontaneous disassembly. Spontaneous disassembly in the air. It exploded. SpaceX people were clapping when that happened, and the optics of that were all just very weird. And I saw a lot of like space reporters say, uh, pointing out, like, yes, this looks bad. This does look bad. Um, we do learn a lot from a success from a launch actually getting off the ground. So in certain respects, it was a success. In many ways, though, it seems like it was not a success for SpaceX because we learned a couple days later that the FAA has basically grounded the Starship for an indefinite period of time as they investigate um, the, the actual launch. Because what happened there is uh, we learned the launch pad itself was destroyed. Debris um, blew far away, like uh, six miles away from the launch pad. Um, there was footage of a minivan, I believe, that was not very close, but close enough to get damaged by debris. Um, and there is like a rain of particulate matter that has basically fallen on the towns around them, around uh, the launch. And we don't know what that means for the humans there. We don't know what that means for the animals or any potential crops or anything in that area. Seems like a mess. Right, Ben? Yeah. Mentioning the um, minivan just reminds me of those farmers insurance commercials that we see in the U.S. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Where they talk about like all of the outlier cases that they've had. And so, man, they will know a thing or two because they've seen one more thing where they're going to have to cover someone getting their roof caved in. Do you live near of... a rocket launch site? <laughs> yeah. You never know what can happen. Well, yeah, but I don't think it would <laughs> affect like insurance premiums or something. It, this is just like such a black swan event. Is it an act of God, though? Uh, it's mm. It's very, very strange. And so I don't think that like if you're living in the area around like Cape Canaveral or wherever SpaceX's um wait, Starbase is is that what they call it um I don't know if you pay more but like you just have to pay that out because it's such a strange thing that no one expected to happen mm -hmm. gotcha another thing um that I think people are pointing out is um 
This thing launched without flame trenches, which is something that would like direct the force of, of the actual launch away from the launch pad. And this is a big, big rocket. So this this is a ton of force. This is something we've never launched anything this big before. People are pointing to tweets from Elon Musk. Uh, what was it last year? Just saying, what if we don't have flame trenches? On yeah, the yeah. I was reading yeah. about this last night. And so like I saw a little bit of like claptrap, like unconfirmed reports that engineers at SpaceX may have said that we need flame trenches. But the most confirmed thing I saw was uh, from a Space.com uh, story that said that usually rockets of this size have flame trenches, yes, to direct the force. And we have to really focus on how powerful this rocket is. One, it's the tallest thing that has ever been even attempted to launch to space. And two, it's twice the power of the thrust that powered the moon missions. So this is just like a ridiculous amount of force. And the idea that you weren't going to use flame trenches or... Uh, can you confirm this for me? Like, Elon said something about like a big, like piece of metal or something that was water cooled and it was like going to dampen the force or something he was saying he was responding to eric burgers at SciGuy space on twitter um here's the elon tweet he said three months ago we started building a massive water-cooled steel plate to go under the launch mount it wasn't ready in time and we wrongly thought based on static fire data uh, that happened back in february that Fontag would uh, Fondag would make it through one launch looks like we can be ready to launch again in one to two months i don't i don't know about that I don't know about that, thanks to the FAA. So clarification there, Fondag is like a very specific kind of concrete that should be able to like withstand the force of a huge rocket launch like this. But if you've seen any of the pictures of what the launch pad looks like after this launch... It's cratered. It, yeah, yeah. It, it's... You see like rebar, and it, it really looks like an explosion went off, because it did. It did. We will be following this, of course, because Starship is is a really interesting project, as, as much as I don't like talking about Elon Musk and his stupid decisions lately. Um, but, you know, the, this thing, the idea is to bring um, cargo to the moon, bring people to the moon more easily, and eventually, like, use the same technology to get to Mars. And maybe, I don't know, I don't know. I, I can't get excited about any of this anymore, which is, that's how that's how much, like, Elon has kind of, like, his reputation has just kind of soured me on a lot of the things he's building. So that's a shame. In other news, UK regulators announced um, that they're blocking Microsoft's Activision Blizzard merger over cloud gaming concerns. And uh, this came from the UK's antitrust regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, um, the CMA, which is notable because the CMA is also the authority regulator that blocked the NVIDIA and ARM acquisition last year and that was a major failure that was a major failure for nvidia because um yeah our arm and having arms technology would have been a good way for, for nvidia to like be better at uh low power chips and just to have a lot more technology there we don't know what's going to be going on with this because microsoft can still appeal this decision so this is not done i believe microsoft left a comment um let me see here there's a statement from Brad Smith, Vice Chair and President at Microsoft. We remain fully committed to this acquisition and will appeal. The CMA's decision rejects a pragmatic path to address competition concerns and discourages technology innovation and investment in the UK. Um, I don't know if pointing to cloud gaming is the thing to really stop this merger. I don't have you even have you dabbled at all with this stuff, Ben? 
No, uh, but as I was getting prepared for uh, this section, I saw that like Microsoft would have a market share between 60 and 70%. Seems like a monopoly to me. Not a lawyer, but seems like a monopoly just from um, a layman's point of view. I mean, based on, and that's purely based on the success of Game Pass and how many subscribers Game Pass has, I don't know if we have the numbers of like how people would actually, um, how many people are actually using cloud gaming on Game Pass. I don't know if we can directly compare it to NVIDIA's GeForce Now service and others. I, I would wager, I would just guess like, sure, it is the biggest. But what is what is that portion of customers? Like how many people is this actually affecting? I don't quite know. So we, this is all, this is still all up in the air again. I believe there is a, there's a date in July. If this deal doesn't actually go through that Microsoft has to pay Activision quite a bit of money and who knows how long this, this whole appeal process will take. So we'll be keeping an eye on this. Yep. Yeah. And the really frustrating thing about this is like, it seems like you have two kind of weird options. The first option is like a near monopoly where everything works pretty smoothly, but you might end up not being able to play games on this thing or that thing, or like Microsoft could arbitrarily take something exclusive and um, gamers would not be able to appeal very well. But on the other hand, maybe like, you know, 15 or so years ago, you had a lot more variety in terms of where you could get your games, but things were kind of janky. So do you want a situation where like one company really rules, but could arbitrarily take your games away from you? Or do you want to use like three or four different platforms that are each a little bit janky in their own ways? I mean, that, that is ultimately it. I feel like um, the seamlessness of technology that we all want, um, there's often a cost to it. Um, the easier something is to use, um, the more stuff that's available, you know, the bigger a company gets. I feel like we, as a society, we pay a cost for it. And just to remind people, this is a $68.7 billion all-cash deal. This is Microsoft just dropping a lot of money to own the company behind Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. And also they own King too. So that would be like Candy Crush under Microsoft. I feel like I'm just wary of that in general. I'm wary of that sort of consolidation. Also because Microsoft has not proven itself to be a great steward to new studios that's brought in or to games lately. Like, I don't know what is going on with the Xbox Series X and S and the recent generation of games, but it is rough. They're just having a lot of trouble. Halo Infinite was delayed for a year, had a troubled launch, is kind of a mess. Um, There aren't really any of the major exclusives people have been waiting for. Um, Did we talk about the Redfall thing where it's not going to be powerful enough? Um, You know, the system can't do performance mode, so Redfall can't be 60 FPS. There's just a lot of bad vibes around Microsoft's gaming stuff right now, and I don't know if they're going to be able to like survive everything attacking this merger, too. Yeah, and isn't this the point of view that Lena Khan is taking at the FTC? It's like gone are the days that a monopoly is defined by owning, you know, 80% of the market. And it's going toward the idea of you're touching too many things. So you can't have like World of Warcraft and Tony Hawk and... um, And Candy Crush. Yeah, and um call of duty too like you're just touching a lot of things and maybe you should drop some of them there are unforeseen consequences to this type of thing and to me that is my worry as somebody who's covered tech a lot i mean i covered when facebook bought whatsapp and everything and 
uh, to me, that kind of killed a lot of the innovation behind WhatsApp and what made it so cool. And then it's just another thing to make Facebook itself more powerful. That Maybe that didn't necessarily hurt WhatsApp much, but it made Facebook a more valuable company. And I, I don't think we actually won as consumers like in terms of how big Facebook has gotten. So anyway, we'll be keeping an eye on this. Be sure to check out the, uh, the Engadget story about this. Um, our, our headline is called UK Regulators Block Microsoft Activision Blizzard Merger Over Cloud Concerns. It's written by Daniel Cooper. And Dan Cooper, who's been on the podcast, is very, um, you know, he's in the UK, he's local there, but he also um, knows a lot about the law side of this stuff. So read his perspective. I think it's really good. For a slightly lighter story, um, we saw news that Indiana Jones 5, Indiana Jones and the Dial of uh, Destiny, I don't like that subtitle, uh, will feature a DH Harrison Ford for the first 25 minutes. Um, we saw hints of this in the trailer. Um... I'm not surprised that we'll be seeing a lot of DH Harrison Ford, but 25 minutes does seem like a big chunk. I have to look up the runtime of this movie, but it could easily be a quarter of the actual film. First thoughts, Ben? Not many. I mean, this is not so um, strange these days. I mean, we've had de-aged characters in movies before, so... But not as, like, the main character for significant chunks of time. I feel like that is a little different, right? They, it's usually in a few scenes here or there. I think it's going to depend on like how it actually looks on screen, especially on a very large format screen. I definitely trust the people behind Indiana Jones to like really painstakingly work on this, but you know, are you going to be able to sell it to me? Also like what age is Indy going to be? Is he going to be in his like thirties or is he going to be mm-hmm. in his like forties or thirties? Like I'm thinking about the Irishman where they definitely, you know, de-aged De Niro for quite a bit. And that was not great. That was not great because there, there was a moment where he was like, uh, you know, beating up somebody on the sidewalk and it looks like an 80 year old man trying to get in a fight and not like 40 something, you know, De Niro, um the the quotes here james mangold the director who i love and i think this movie i think it really has a shot at actually being good because james mangold is uh doesn't make bad movies like straight up um so harry in the chat says what was that will smith movie again um that was gemini man which also had yeah that had a big gem uh that had a big dh was that de-aged and then also like extremely high fps it was all those um it was also a cg recreation of will smith so i don't think it was the same thing like i don't think it was like straight up de-aging tech the way this is but uh, you know i talked to ang lee about this and like he said that character is just all cg like that face is CG manipulated, not necessarily going through like an AI generated de aging tech. Um, Mangold says he would shoot Harrison Ford on Monday. You know, as a 79 year old playing a 35 year old. Uh, so 35 is the, the key age there. And he could see dailies by Wednesday where his head was already replaced. So that's pretty quick. Uh, Gemini Man, I believe, was like all like manual CG stuff. That's cool in terms of tech, but I think the most relevant thing is coming back to your example with the Irishman you're not going to be able to have a 70-something actor in Bangle says Harrison the, Ford no, had the agility but, of a young man. Okay, <laughs> sure. sure. But like in, really embody the physicality of someone who like can do everything. Their parts move like they aren't 70-something. Is he going to be jumping onto the top of trains and stuff? Yeah, like, exactly. Hmm. 
I cannot wait for this movie. Um, on on my movie podcast, the Filmcast, we do have summer movie wager, and uh, Indy Five is way high up on my on my list. So I hope it does well. I'm hoping for like a Top Gun Maverick situation. Just people people are jonesing for their Jones, and they're gonna want to see Harrison Ford as his like last hurrah as Indiana Jones. Let's move on to some AI updates. Um, ben, you brought up the story about Snapchat. Uh, they saw a spike in one-star reviews after they uh, after they launched a feature called My AI, and people are calling for its removal. Um, just, it just seems like a general thing. Like people people are not going to take kindly to some of these features. Do you have any thoughts on this one, Ben? I mean, one people don't like having a feature just foisted on them. Period. Two. I wanted to like check out the my AI feature on Snapchat, but of course, as soon as you tap on that feature, there's another additional thing that you have to agree to, like sign your rights away a little bit. And I was like, you know what? I don't think that I want to do that. And I saw this article before I tried to play with my AI on my own phone. The thing that really stands out to me is some of the replies to the like announcement tweet that Snapchat did that's embedded in this TechCrunch story. There's one by this Twitter user Madison Carroll who, you know, seems just like a uh, normal girl from Tennessee. She says, this uh, post is so creepy, absolutely no, do not want it, because she's talking to the My AI feature about, you know, where is the closest gas station? The My AI says, the closest gas station to you is, you know, a shell 5.5 miles away. She says, I have my Snapchat hidden from maps. And My AI says, I apologize for the confusion. Unfortunately, I don't have access to your location since you have hidden, excuse me? This is like an AI assistant type of thing, too. Yes, it's an AI assistant thing, and I'm not sure what people are on Snapchat would be looking for in terms of an AI assistant. Mm -hmm. Expect a lot of like user rejection of these features. I feel like this is not going to be a new thing. And uh, just a follow up, also an AI update. A follow up to the story uh, we talked about was it last week or the week before about the uh, fake Drake and the weekend AI you know song grimes again we cannot get out of elon musk's orbit the music artist grimes uh announced on twitter this week that uh she says i'll split 50 percent royalties on any successful ai generated song that uses my voice same deal as i would with any artist i collab with feel free to use my voice without penalty i have no label and no legal bindings so this is a contract this tweet it's the or at least like this is like full full use for people to play with her voice um what are you like? You are more on the audio side of things, Ben, and I'm sure you're looking a lot at AI audio stuff. What do you think of this? Is this interesting or is this maybe misguided from her? I think it's kind of neato, just like her willingness to play ball. I think that it could end up being kind of creepy or not be as successful as immediately as she might hope. Grimes, even before she was involved with. Uh, you know, South African techno man uh, was always like a really early adopter on yeah. the thing. She yeah. made a bunch of money on NFTs. Um, and it gets back to the thing that I was saying last week or a couple of weeks ago. I think it was last week when we were talking about Drake and the Weekend, where something that happens in the music industry very often is a songwriter will come to a big label and say, I think I have a really good song for 
you know, this huge artist and this huge artist. And the A&R person, a gatekeeper who might be able to send that song to the huge artists, might say, you know what, I don't hear it, as just a way of, like, brushing that person aside. That songwriter can now make a mock-up. And so it's not like you quote-unquote, can't hear it. Like, you absolutely can. The question is whether or not the technology is up to snuff. Because Hard on My Sleeve, the Drake and Weekend uh, AI track, sounds notably good. There are a lot of other similar things. Yeah. Similar, um, like... If you look on TikTok, like, there there is a straight-up, like, just a, a whole bunch of AI music floating around... I'm thinking like it seems like either the weekend or Michael Jackson. Honestly, the weekend sounds a lot like Michael Jackson in certain points. That's um, his whole deal. That's his whole deal. But Michael Jackson's voice feels like the defining voice of AI music. Like people are just doing everything with it and they're getting really good. Which, which is, is funny because yeah. remember when we thought that like holograms were going to be like the next frontier in live music there was like a good six or eight months when people were like it, we can resurrect all your favorite that artists still be true to be honest like we 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 tie all these things together so like we were disappointed with siri we we're disappointed with google assistant maybe we we're disappointed with holograms because those were all like basically cg creations and like very stiff and recorded but if you if you could have a live hologram and you send it a text string and just be like give me your rendition of uh, of a certain song it just does it like we are, we are, yeah, we're getting to an interesting point. And then I wonder about like who, how do you, how do you manage basically controlling somebody's virtual image completely, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually we have a really good comment from Darren N in the YouTube chat that says, could be disastrous if they bring up her relationship problems with Elon in the AI songs. They have another is- kid. She says their relationship is fluid. So I don't know. The new daughter, the new kid is called Exadark Sidereal. Oh, good Sidereal. God. Sidereal. Don't forget that. That was like in March. March last year they announced that. Well, yeah, and that was actually with a surrogate. So um, don't know how much that matters. But like that's actually a really good like door to another idea of like, okay, if the song is really good, that will get away from you way faster than you intend it to. So if it has some like shade on a personal relationship that you would rather not blow up for everyone you have to no control see, or it could be like a salacious rumor or something but if the salacious rumor is encapsulated in a song that slaps <laughs> that's going to get away from you and then what are you going to do are you going to sue them or are you going to just take your 50 percent cut is it going to end up on tv commercials there are so many different possibilities here Oh, man. There, you know, yeah, we will be following all of this. It's all making my head hurt. But uh, I do wonder, I do wonder, like, you were just like letting people use your image and you basically give up entire control. And maybe Grime seems like the sort of person that's just like, hey, we'll live and let live and let's see what happens with this stuff. Um, if you see any good AI uh, voices or AI, you know, created music, please share it with us, podcastinggadget.com. Let's move on to what we're working on. Um, I've been talking about the Razer Blade 16 for the past couple of weeks, and my review of that is going up uh, either today or tomorrow, sometime this week. And, uh, you know, I just talked about it with Sam last week. Um, I I like it more than he liked the Blade 18, mainly because it has this cool dual-mode display. And I just want to correct something I said last week, too. Um, I said the display was 1440p and 1080. It's actually 4K and 1080. I just got... I was thinking of something else entirely. There is a separate 1440p model of the Blade 16, but it doesn't do any dual-mode stuff. Um, 
I did a bunch of gaming on this thing. It is really cool to have a computer that basically has a 4K screen that runs natively, and then you reboot it. And Asus has this technology uh, where that can turn that 4K panel effectively into a 1080p panel. So it's 4K by default, but when you go into 1080p mode, it basically acts and looks as clear as a 1080p panel. And that goes up to 240 hertz as 1080p. In 4K, it's 120 hertz. It's really cool tech. I think some gamers will be into it, but it is just so expensive. It is $3,300 if uh, you want this dual mode technology. And that's $3,300 with an RTX 4070. And that is just way too much money for a 4070 series laptop. So very cool experiment. Uh, maybe for some people, um, they will want to experiment with this sort of thing, especially if they have the money. But if you're listening to this and you want a good deal, please look at any of our other like laptop reviews. Like look at the, you know, the Asus Zephyrus uh, G14 or something, which is a 1440p laptop and is easily going to be $1,000 less than the dual mode version of this. So it's cool, but not cool enough. And I think most people would be better off with the Blade 15. Check out my review and the video is going to be going up soon. And let's move on to pop culture picks. Uh, ben, I didn't ask you, but is there anything you want to shout out before I talk about my thing? Why don't you go first? Yeah. I will talk about my thing that I've been addicted to lately, and that is the new Netflix series, The Diplomat. And this show rules. This show rules if you like The West Wing, if you like Homeland, if you like uh, good banter and really strongly written characters. It's created by Deborah Kahn, who worked on both of those shows, by the way. And it stars Carrie Russell as a as a diplomat in the US, you know, in the US system, who is sent to London to be the chief like UK diplomat. She doesn't really want it. She sees it as a ceremonial position, but uh, the series begins with an attack on the U on a British tanker. And America is just needs to help go there and help out, help a strong ally out. Um, Carrie Russell um, is this person who wants to be a more substantive diplomat, somebody who's actually doing real, you know, international diplomacy and not just like they don't, she doesn't want to be there for photo shoots and stuff. And it's just really compelling. It's it's basically a lot of people in conversations, people in boardrooms and meeting rooms, trying to talk down the British government from, you know, attacking a country that they think could be at fault or just dealing with this in a better way. There's a lot of intrigue. There are a lot of twists. This is one of those shows where, like, the final five minutes really, like, hook you in to watch the next thing because the twists are really good. Um, it also co-stars Rufus Sewell, who I... I've loved in everything. Rufus Sewell in Dark City. Um, he's very dashing. He's very charming. But he is sort of like the opposite kind of character where Carrie Russell's character is very much a, she um, she is really smart. She is hyper competent. She is really good at what she does. But she also is very good about like, you know, doing things the proper way. And Rufus Sewell is like the Joker of diplomats. He is just like an agent of chaos. And seeing him have fun, seeing their relationship develop because it's not really... It's a close relationship, but she also doesn't want to stay with him, you know, uh, for, for too long. Um, it's really interesting. I think everybody is just really good. Um, this show is eight episodes, eight episodes on Netflix, and I am almost done. I'm loving it. It is so addictive. If you liked Homeland, if you like The West Wing, check out The Diplomat. Ben, anything you want to talk about? Cool. So a short walk to my pick. Uh, last week, I was in Manhattan visiting a friend. Usually don't go to Manhattan during the week, but I just wanted to see my friend's new apartment that he bought, and we talked about radio stuff, and so here I was, like, in Manhattan, by myself, kind of hungry. The dream, don't usually yes. have <laughs> Don't usually have dinner alone, uh -huh. but I knew that I wanted to go to, like, this one bar that 
a few friends and I had gone to in the past and, I don't know, see if I could strike up a conversation with someone um, I didn't know. But first, God, I needed some food. So that bar was right near this little micro-neighborhood called Dime Square. Oh, sh- if don't, you don't, don't know anything Don't bring about, Dime Square to this podcast. Damn if you don't know bad. anything about Dime Square, good. Keep it that <sighs> way. If you need a very shorthand idea of why this is relevant, just think about Dime Square as, like... You know what people were talking about in terms of like Williamsburg, Brooklyn, sure. circa two thousand. If it was a block, if it was a block big, basically, yeah. But actually, the funny thing about this like little area is that it wouldn't exist if it weren't for um like the COVID like open streets sure. sort of thing. Sure. So anyway, like lots of cool big quote unquote people there. I wanted to go to Dimes, the restaurant at the center of it all. I was hoping that I was going to hear like, you know, some Instagram famous people talking about, um, you know, getting brand deals or somebody complaining about their trust fund. I'm looking around the restaurant and I am thinking like, i hope I get sat next to that person. I hope I get sat next to that person. I hope I don't get sat next to that one guy who seems like he's the oldest person in the room. That's probably not going to be a fun conversation to overhear while I eat dinner alone. I end up getting sat next to that white-haired man. He looks at me out of the corner of his eye, and I'm like, oh my god, that's David Byrne. I am an arm's length away from the singer of the Talking Heads. (laughs) I was just I was just um, thinking about the tweet like somebody was playing like what if you go to karaoke and somebody's doing Prince and it's David Byrne and there's video of that going out yeah okay. yeah that video resurfaced recently yeah. and it's really funny that it happened that just cool. around now did you say anything to Mr David Byrne no I didn't say anything to Mr David Byrne because that <sighs> is violating it's the true. rules of New York City you have to which let is... him engage you have to let him open up first. Well, yeah, but also, yeah. like, just let people be normal people. There are so many people in close quarters in New York City. What was just David Byrne allow... eating? What was, the, what was the scenario, Ben? Um, okay, so he was there with, like, you know, s- some female companion. I'm not going to suppose who that person is, but they were having a relatively mundane conversation about, you know, his voice is so distinct too. Like you, you wouldn't even need to see him to know David Byrne is in the room with you. So, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't sure if it was him or just someone who looked like him because there are a lot of very stylish, completely white-haired men sure, in sure. New York City. All the men who were cool in the '80s and '90s. Um, are still down there. They're still living in New York. Yeah, absolutely. They because they claimed squatter's rights on live workspaces in <laughs> okay. Soho or something. Okay. So, yeah, I I confirmed that it was David Byrne, heard his voice. I was like, that can't not be him. He shouted out loud, how did I get here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I talked with the server after he left, and the server was like, do you know who that was? And I was like, was that David Byrne? So this is actually a long way of getting to mentioning that just yesterday, this would be Wednesday, April 26th, um, I do work on a bunch of different podcasts. One of the podcasts I work on is um, a like beauty industry thing. We did an interview with the founders of Good Die Young. Among them, Haley Williams. Uh-huh, love uh-huh. Haley Williams. Love Paramore. This is a long way of getting to the fact that you should be listening to the album This Is Why by Paramore, because there is a really clear link between the Talking Heads 
and this new Paramore album. Okay. I was able to mention that to Haley herself, and she really appreciated it. Oh, so. that's that's very nice. Um, have you did you get to see American Utopia at any point, Ben? I didn't get to see American Utopia. That's one of those things. It was it was playing before it was there. You know, before the pandemic, it was like I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go see David Burns. Um, you know, on Broadway, and yeah, never happened. That's it for the show this week, folks. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find me online at, at Devendra on Twitter, at Devendra at Mastodon.social, at the Elephant site. Sam Rutherford's on Twitter, too. Just search him there. And uh, Ben, where can we find you? I nominally have a Twitter account. It's at HeyBellman. And I think that my last tweet that I did in October is really fun. So go look at that. Email us at podcastandgadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts. Thanks, folks. We're out.